My name is Josh Williams, and I'm the lead pastor here at this church. I'm really excited to continue our series, uh, Love is Greater Than Fear. Uh, Matt kicked it off last week, and he shared uh, some really important stuff with us. The first is that uh, we're all prone to fear. Sorry to kind of tell that to you, but it seems like we just kind of are afraid of things. We're afraid of people that are unlike us. We're afraid of failure. Sometimes we're even afraid of God. And we saw that in Scripture last week when we looked at Adam and Eve and how after they disobeyed God, they hid from God out of fear. But God is generous enough to actually provide an antidote to that fear, particularly the love of God. Even if we're afraid of God, God gives us his love, and that love has the power to cast out any and all fear. It's not just courage that does that, not mere bravery, but really the force that is the love of God. We can celebrate that with this author John in the epistles who says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. So if God's love is the antidote, then one, mo- one of the most important things about dealing with fear is remembering who God is, remembering that God loves us, remembering that he's not missing from your story, but actually God is in your story, at work in your story, working on your behalf. My personal experience is that we often can forget that. Uh, My most recent experiences of that, kind of just this forgetting because of an assault of fear, happened when Tina was pregnant with Zoe, our daughter. Uh, For some reason, Tina's baby bump was almost like a magnet or a billboard for conversations with strangers. It just happened all the time. And those strangers were saying a lot of different things. Uh, They were basically telling us their absolute nightmare stories about childbirth and newborns. I'm like, I don't know why they thought that would be a good idea. Like, hey, you're pregnant. So then just an assault of stuff. But people saying, hey, like, I hope you're enjoying sleep now. Because you're never going to sleep again. Like, ever. Like, you're just not going to do it. And that's maybe if the sleep is already bad, the pregnancy-related stuff, are you okay? Uh, Just, like, kind of constant stuff. People saying, whoa, get ready. Like, mine are already out of the house. It's amazing. Like, I'm enjoying the freedom. But, like, you know, you'll be okay. It's just 18 years. 18 long, long years. And maybe other people saying, like, some things that kind of felt like practical tips. Like, okay, you know, you just got to childproof everything. Like, everything. Like, every floor, like, every level. Just, like, everything needs to get that. Otherwise, there could be some pretty bad stuff that happens. Just strangers, like, talking to us all the time. Even when Zoe was young, it kind of continued. People kind of always talking about the next step or the next journey. Oh, well, has she done this yet? Or is this going to happen? We're like, wow, we're in a lot of conversations with people we don't know. And this didn't really always seem for our benefit, but almost like they were using it as like a therapy session for themselves, like kind of like just like talking at themselves and what's going on in their lives. We just felt like we were in their crosshairs. And in the end, Tina and I got a message. It was pretty loud, pretty clear having a baby was going to be absolutely terrifying and incredibly hard. And there was nothing uh, we could really do about that anymore. And we could basically just barely survive. And I got to be honest, it did cause me to be a little fearful. I'd never had so many people, including so many strangers that often had their kid in tow or kind of were aged a little bit. So I was like, okay, they went through us. Say, this is how it's going to be. People's fear-mongering was louder than my own growing hope and faith, what I thought it might be to be a father their confidence chipped away at mine. But there was a particular thing that happened at ECV where I actually didn't experience any of that, just to be honest, really. People were real about what was going to happen, but there was hope. And not only was there hope, but there was often like concrete support attached to it. Hey, if that ever happens, like I'd totally be fine coming over. I'm going to give you meals. I'm offering to pray for you. Like you're going to be okay. God's work in this community was so, so different than all those strangers that just thought it was okay to kind of let their fear 
uh, kind of be on me. It was almost like it was contagious. Fear is powerful, and it seems like it can be simply like the default way that we process the world. It makes me think of all the ways that fear can get ramped up, not just personal ways it can get ramped up in our lives, like Tina and me struggling to have this hope in this new season of transition for us, uh, but also the way that folks use fear to shape society more at large. Just a few months ago, we had fear of another recession. Uh, it led the stock market to have the third biggest single-day drop of all time. Fear cost money. Or when a foreign nation wants to sway elections, let's say another country like the U.S., and creates, true story, Facebook ads from various different ideologies that amplify division and stoke fear. These are all real Facebook ads paid for by Russia uh, to enter into the U.S. to stoke fear. Uh, fear creates that separation. In case you're looking at one in particular, yes, maybe especially in the church. There's a lot of things wrong with that image. I won't get into all of them, but like, that's crazy, right? Maybe it's even closer to home in our city when New Haven folks who are homeless are vilified so much that the city flirts with an awful bill criminalizing homelessness. Fear marks and punishes outsiders. These examples aren't just one awful person mandating something for everyone. I hope you guys catch that. In fact, each one of these things I just mentioned needed a groundswell to become powerful. We are all a part of this. Our fear, unfortunately, goes viral. That fear can have devastating real-world consequences for us and other groups of people. That's why Matt's call for us to be a community here at ECV and beyond, to be a community that experiences God's love so much that it can become a hub for anti-anxiety. That's why that call is so incredibly powerful, so incredibly important. It might be the very thing our city needs, our country needs, our world needs. Those are like big words, but I think I really believe that. That call to be a community of peace, a community battling anxiety. Can we be a place where our fear regularly meets the love of God and we let God's love win each and every time? Today we're going to expand how we see fear at work in our lives by looking at a narrative that's actually working on a national scale. It's empowered by a king, empowered by officials at large. And for the characters in our narrative, fear is just not a personal thing to get over. Sometimes when we think about fear, it's like, well, I'll just work on it. Like, I'll be okay, or maybe I won't work on it, but I'll just kind of suffer through it. That's not what this narrative is about. Fear is not just a personal thing to get over. Instead, it's baked in to national policies and procedures, and the stakes are nothing less than life or death. This is a story of Esther, and the heartbeat of the story is, where is God in all of this? Where is God? Where is he? As we discover more about what this is all about and how it affects us, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us? Be with us in this room. Be with us in where we are with you, knowing you, close to you, concerned about you. God, I pray that you would be with us as your love pushes out fear. Fear that's personal, but also fear that's working at an even deeper level. Holy Spirit, would you have your way in this time? Amen. So the book of Esther is short. It's only 10 chapters. And even though that book kind of sits in the middle of your Bible, the timeline for when Esther is, is actually more at the end of the timeline of the Hebrew scriptures. It's well after our creation narrative from last week. It's well after the first few kings of Israel, the prophets that were sent to speak to them, to show them the way. 
and even after a really important time of exile, where the people of God were forced into Babylon. This is even beyond that. When the people of God are in a place called Persia, some of them, and there's a different king, a different reigning power named Xerxes that's in charge. I just want to tell a little bit of that story. One really strange thing about this story is that God is never mentioned. Not once, not at all. Not by a character, not by a narrator. And it's the only book in the Bible that's like that. And again, this is a great setup for the author to ask this question. Where is God in all of this? Where is God? Because it seems like the scripture kind of begs that because you're looking for it. Is God going to show up here or there? Like, why aren't these characters mentioning God? It's almost as if it's intentional to make us ask the question, where is God? I'm convinced this is the question we always need to answer when we're struggling with fear. God, where are you here? So here's the setup of Esther. There's a reigning king in the land named Xerxes, and he loves to party. He loves to drink, loves to carouse, he loves to do a lot of stuff. And he actually throws a party for 180 days, half a year, basically. It's a long party. And how does he mark the end of that party? You have a guess? He throws another party. This is a party that's now just for seven days, modest, right? And at that party, he's wanting everything to go well. All the drink to be amazing, people to order whatever they want. And of course, he wants to kind of showcase his queen, Queen Vashti. And he's hoping that everyone will see her, that everyone will see her beauty. There's only one problem. When he calls for her, she doesn't come. Maybe it's the fact that she's hosted a party for 180 days and is kind of tired of that. Maybe something else. But she doesn't come. She says, nope. And the king has a problem. He's absolutely furious. He's just incredibly mad. And we learn a little bit about this king. We learn a little bit about who he is, what some of his tendencies are, how he's a leader. Because even though he's mad and angry, he doesn't really know what to do. So he says, court officials, can you come? I have some problems here. I need to know what to do. And they're like, well, okay, something is wrong. Your wife is kind of crazy. We don't know what's going on with her. But more than your wife, actually, I think your wife is going to affect all the other wives of the land. So, like, there's, like, an issue here. Now we have, like, a national crisis. Like, you thought it was just your wife, just Vashti, but actually, it's every woman everywhere. This tells you a little bit about the culture of the day, right? Things are just with one person, but in Persia, it seems to affect a lot more than that. There's a way that this fear-mongering is going to be a pattern we see again and again. So the court officials say, let's do a few things. Let's remove Vashti from the, the kingdom. Let's say you need a new queen. And let's do this edict that says all women everywhere, all wives, need to honor their husbands. These guys are kind of just uh, pulling some jerk moves right now. And it's all because of fear and all because of power. But it creates an opening for something new to happen in the kingdom, something quite unexpected. This is where Esther kind of comes into our narrative. She's a young Jewish woman, and she actually kind of competes for this role of queen. How does the competition happen? Believe me, this is kind of crazy, but it's in your scripture. A beauty pageant. There's a beauty pageant with all the women in the land. And Esther, it's unclear if she's forced to be in it, it's unclear if she chooses to be in it, but she's in it. And the favor of God is on her life, and in short order, she becomes queen. And she has the favor of the land. Now, no one knows that she's Jewish, and that's a secret even to the king. There's another character, Mordecai, who's kind of like an adopted dad, uh, the cousin of Esther. But these are the characters that kind of are in our story. All of a sudden, at the very beginning, Esther's promoted to queen in the land, and they're wondering, what's next? Where is God in this? What's going on? Even with this king, it's kind of wild partying king. What's going to happen next? 
Now, chapter three introduces our villain, and we'll start here with Haman. This is a character that's a number two to the king, and there's a problem one day with Haman and Mordecai, Esther's kind of adopted dad. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would avail, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So kind of the stakes are set. Haman, he actually is a guy that wants to be worshipped. He's a guy that wants to be obeyed. He wants to be respected in a certain way. And Mordecai doesn't really play that game. Even though uh, there's a, a, a practice, whether it's to bow or curtsy, to obey in some way, Mordecai says, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm going to do. And as soon as Haman learns who Mordecai is, that it's not just this man, but a member of this group, this Jewish group, that has certain laws, certain differences, a plan takes shape. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance to him, just a word that means obedience or kind of curtsying, bowing, Haman was infuriated. But he thought it beneath him to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So having told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So when Mordecai doesn't show this bowing down, doesn't show this deference, Haman knew there needed to be some kind of punishment. And one of the things that's crazy about the text is like, hey, it would be beneath me just to like kind of get in a fight or even just to like put a hit out on this guy. I, I need to do genocide of all the Jewish people. That's kind of insane. Haman's bringing it up a notch. But it's because he hates being disobeyed. And he's willing to create fear based on difference to get his own way. Now, while Haman has anger and has a kind of plot he technically doesn't have the power. He needs to get the king on board. But from what we know about the king already, he seems to not really know all the time what to do, but kind of getting advice from his council. Is this going to be hard or not? That's what we see next. Then Amon said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction. It's funny, if you were here last week, you saw how the serpent talked to Eve, right? There's some things that are similar here. Right? You know that this isn't the king's law, right? He's not following that. There's some provoking here. Haman is really in a conflict with Mordecai, but he goes sniffing out for other people to bring into the mix these scattered people, separated people, to target all of them because they're different. And they're not following God's ways, or the king's ways. That's what he says. They don't keep the king's law. They're not even appropriate to tolerate. If it pleases the king, just destroy them. Now, something to notice about context, uh, Persia was actually a pretty safe place to be Jewish up until this point. It was known as a place of tolerance. And so this wasn't something they're kind of tapping into, some like historic stuff. This is all new stuff that Haman is plotting. He's poisoning the king with this kind of, you know, idea of fear. And it seems like it's going to be working, working like a charm. The king actually gives Haman the authority 
to take out this people. There's an edict that it's going to be on a certain day the Jewish people will be taken out. Suddenly, something was just a personal issue between Haman and Mordecai, something that just made Haman personally mad, has become national policy. It's become a procedure for all the people of the land. We see it in this text very clearly. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, giving orders to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Turns out it pays off to be friends with the king. It turns out it pays off to be number two, like Haman is. Because basically he speaks something to the king, this idea of fear. And the fear is powerful enough for a whole group, a whole people group to be threatened. Once again, one Persian man's bruised ego has somehow brought about personalized letters to every every province that say kill, no, actually annihilate, the Jewish people, young and old, women and children. Somehow, what we saw at the first two parts of chapter 1 and 2, this ascendancy for Mordecai and Esther, and someone's probably representing ascendancy of Jewish folk in the region in exile, it doesn't seem that way anymore. And you could ask the question at the end of chapter 3, where is God? Maybe it was easier to see God in the rise But in this place, it's harder, right? It's harder to know, what is God doing? What is God up to? This isn't just any old group. It's the group that God's chosen, given covenant promises to. And yet, there's an order out for all of their lives. Because of what? Because Mordecai obeyed God. This doesn't seem to make sense. How could obedience get you in such trouble? How could following God end up with You and all your people threatened. Where is God in all of this? Still not mentioned, but somehow that absence maybe seems greater now. This is the question again of the book of Esther, and it's our question too. Where is God when when people's bruised egos become national policies that harm the least and the already marginalized? Where is God when authorities and the powers that be care more about self-preservation, meaning they'll always be more prone to responding to fear? Because fear is what allows you to think about, how could I keep on to power? How could I keep on, in some way, growing in authority? Versus something like love, which is always self-emptying. It always makes yourself vulnerable. They're not really open to love. And I don't think we're open to love we are thinking about self-preservation. Where is God when a Jewish queen, as powerful as she is, still can't do anything for her people because her silence will not save her or anyone else? Where is God? I want to take a look at this point in the text, which I think is one of the heights of the dramatic tension of the story, to look at the relationship of fear and authority, to pause and explore it here. And here's how I see it. If something isn't powerful, we usually don't fear it. Does that make sense? If it's not powerful, we're usually not afraid of it. And the things we usually fear, they've been shaped by people, by culture, by institutions. Our fears truly aren't our own. They're shaped, curated, and tugged on by the powers that be when the powers that be need them tugged on. Again, I'm not talking about snakes or spiders here. 
I know some of y'all probably are scared of those things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the dynamics that I think are present in our everyday lives, when our fear is inspired by the authorities of our lives, external and internal. When we have someone in our work environment that mocks people, when they do a bad job, when it's not kind of up to what they think. Fear grows when we do that. Some of you guys have been in this place. You know that person. You know what it felt like. It might be even visceral to you. Maybe it's when we feel like an imposter in a certain environment and we've witnessed someone with power expose others before. Maybe for not being cultured enough, for not being a good enough parent, for not being religious or irreligious enough, for not following the rules, whatever they are in that setting. Fear grows. We know what it's felt like to be an imposter in those settings and feeling like, is someone going to catch me right now? When we have a nation that isolates and targets groups to make them feel small and expendable, like bugs that could be squashed, fear grows in all those circumstances. And I don't think our fear is random. I just don't. I think our fear has a history. Like there's a long story behind it. It's usually tied to how we've experienced authority of some kind, whether it's our parents, whether it's influential teachers in our life, maybe bosses or systems and structures that we really tried to obey to fit in. I think there's times where these don't fit well, and it causes us a kind of anxiety. We become afraid. Not randomly, actually, but very specifically. It shapes us. It creates a story. What's Mordecai's crime here? He didn't obey that same fear, maybe the fear to fit in, the fear to just say, I know that I'm this, that I'm Jewish, but I don't need to perform this thing. I'm just going to bow and just get it over with. He didn't do that. He didn't obey and bow down to the powers that be. He resisted. And in his resistance, Haman wanted not only Mordecai to feel the full powers of Persia, but all of the Jewish people, because the kind of guy Haman is. So where in our lives, in our stories, have we been afraid of others? Maybe been afraid of things because of some power that they had over us. Maybe some power that they held over us, ways they influenced us. Perhaps it's in your family, maybe at your job. Maybe it's even a previous church culture, even this church culture. Do you resist like Mordecai and not bow down that fear that's packed with power and authority? Or did you submit to it? Or maybe, and I feel like I've tried to do this a lot in my life, try to say, well, I'm just not really involved. Like, that, that's over there. That's some other people. And try to act like this dilemma altogether wasn't yours. And I think there's a great question to ask here. Where is God in all of this? And where are you in all of this? This seems to be the question of the Jewish people at the moment, and I think it should be ours too. Let's look at their reaction and see how it's, I think, quite different than how we often react. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It seems important to mention, at a time of duress, in a time of distress, in a time where so much could be happening, where do the Jewish people go here? They go to ritual. They go to lament. 
They go to intentional sadness, not being alone, but actually it seems like being together. They're not numb. They're not blame-shifting. They're not complaining, and they're not alone. I know these have often been some of my first responses when I'm afraid. Even if God is not mentioned in this text, these are people who have been shaped and formed by practices that do not give in to fear or worry, but they instead embrace the reality of pain. They embrace the reality of suffering or of sadness. And I wonder if there's a real lesson there that as painful it is to embrace those things, I wonder if embracing that with the cost that it has actually moves us closer to love, eventually to love, more than just being numb. Do you catch that? Like, when you're sad intentionally, when you're with other people, when you're mourning, I wonder if you can experience this love of God eventually, the love of God that casts out all fear faster, healthier, than just being numb, than just being alone. This is God's path for God's people. But our story isn't done here. It doesn't end with mourning. It doesn't end with just being outside the king's court. There actually does happen to be one person with authority in all of this. It's the person the book's named after, Queen Esther. Mordecai communicates to her, saying, I'm begging you here. Would you please talk to the king? And in this text, we realize the cost of that for her. This is Esther back to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All are like are to be put to death. Only if the king holds up the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For you keep silence at such a time as this. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. For such a time as this. So if you catch the context here, even though she's the queen, just going to the king without an appointment, going to the king without any kind of uh, recognition, she could die. She could perish. And seeing how this king acts, I wouldn't want to fool around with that. Her life is at stake. But Mordecai has something surprising going on for him. It's this different kind of thing than fear. It's actually a surprising amount of faith, where he says, actually, I think God's people are going to be rescued. I think it's going to come from somewhere. But what if, Esther, what if it's actually from you, from your royal dignity, from this situation, maybe for such a time as this? Maybe that's what God is doing in your story. Maybe that's why you're here. And I think everything changes when we use a for such a time as this paradigm in our lives. Maybe we feel a little bit too important to do that. Wait, me? I'm not Esther. Come on. I don't need to put that paradigm on, but I kind of dare you to do it, to see what would happen if we use this paradigm as we think about our lives. For such a time as this, I'm in the city of New Haven. For such a time as this, I've become friends with my neighbors, actually gotten to know them, to know their stories. For such a time as this, I'm actually in a good relationship, or maybe just a relationship with your boss. Could that matter? Could God be doing things through that? 
What if instead of being afraid because of authority, we wonder if God might give us and our community strategic ways to engage authority so we don't have to be afraid? Silence in Esther's case, and I think in ours, probably won't solve much. But instead, I think we see here that Esther is moved by love. And it's not just love for God, although I think we can assume that's there, but it's much clearer in the text that she's moved by the love of her people. That if she doesn't do anything, her people could die. So Esther changes her tune. We see here that this line really affects her. Maybe you've come to royal dignity for such a time as this. And her response changes. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, oops, come back. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. There's been this change of heart, it seems, where Esther decides to let go of her, fe- of her fear, a fear of actually dying, dying by the king's hand, and she's resolved to meet with him. Esther let the love of her people drive her to courage, the kind of love that lets her say, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. She's motivated by the people in front of her that she can rescue and save. She's motivated by the group that she belongs to. She's motivated to serve, even at the cost, potential cost of her life. And I wonder if that's the kind of anti-anxiety love that God wants us to have at the center of our lives, the center of our community. A kind of love that's so strong, it's actually not just directed upwards towards God, but it's directed outwards as well to other people. A kind of love so strong that it opens us to sacrifice in ordinary and extraordinary ways, even on behalf of other people. Again, that question in Esther keeps pounding around in our heads. Where is God in this text? And just like in our lives, I think we can see it in different ways. In the ascendancy, this favor that Queen Esther has, in the tragedy of not knowing what's going to happen, the lowest moment where there's this edict that says, all of these people are going to die. But even in the midst of things where there seems to be a plan of redemption, God is also at work. It seems like God is work at all times. And fear tries to thwart that at each season. But God's people can step into an ordinary and extraordinary love for God and for others. Now, there's a line that happens throughout this whole narrative. I just want to focus on that for the rest of the time. And it's this line of, if it pleases the king. And if you remember from our story, at this point, the court officials have said that early on in Esther. Haman has said it about this horrible edict that's out. Mordecai is advocating that Esther say it. And it's basically a phrase that's been used to sucker the king into plans, King Xerxes. But the difference with Esther is that she seems to know there's another king that sits on another throne. And that king has different kinds of power. That king has a different story. That king has a different way. And her behavior, it seems like, is growing in trust of that. And actually, that's what this thing has all been about, right? That Mordecai's actions started this kind of defiance from Haman. Mordecai what truly knew what would truly please the king. This unadulterated worship, not tainted by fear or idolatry involving lesser gods. These powers that shape our world. Mordecai knew what would please God, the king of kings. 
And his obedience to God actually is what creates this main conflict. I think that's why Mordecai can say to his cousin, even though she's queen, hey, God's going to rescue us one way or another. But might it be you? Might it be you stepping up into this moment of obedience? Might it be you stepping up into this moment of love, even if it exposes you, even if it brings you to sacrifice? When we think of this phrase, if it pleases the king, I think we can think of it kind of as like a begging phrase or like kind of a suckering up or something like that. Like if it pleases the king. But I wonder if it's, again, for us to think who and where is God in all of this? Where is God in our lives? Who do we think the one with power really is in our lives? Is it the fear that kind of tempts us, causes us to be ensnared in something? Or is it this good and sovereign king that's present in each season, even if it's hard for us to understand? Who is the king? And are we concerned? Are we interested in pleasing this good and sovereign king? I think God's love can change that phrase from one that's maybe used more in like terror or timidity to one that's used with a kind of confidence. God, if it pleases you, help me out. And even to other people, with the confidence of God. Hey, if it pleases you, because we know that we're standing with God, not just by ourselves. In fact, this conversation actually changed, changes the whole of Esther. If you don't know the Bible Project, please look it up. It's amazing you kind of see that there's like this dissent that happens in the text. But then this, if it pleases the king, changes everything. Esther uses this two other times to create two other banquets. Again, this is a story that's all about parties. Parties are everywhere in this story. And she says, hey, can I have a banquet with Haman and the king? And at that banquet, guess what she says? Hey, can I have another banquet with Haman and the king? And after that time, something strange happens. The king has this experience where he can't sleep and someone just goes over the royal records with him at night. Seems like that's like his preferred bedtime reading, the royal records. And guess what he learns? He learns that Mordecai had saved him. And he said, wait, I need to throw this guy a party. That's what I do. Like, I just throw parties. So I need to throw Mordecai one. So the next day, he grabs Haman and says, guess what? I need to honor someone. And Haman's thinking, oh, who? Who, who is it, right? Who is it? And he's like, well, I, I need to honor someone. So what, 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 do you, what do you think I should do? And Haman gives like this elaborate proposal of what to do. It's like a horse, it's a carriage, it's got this and that going all through the city. And then at the end, he's like, well, great, get Mordecai. I want to celebrate him that way. And Haman's like, oh, shoot, this is bad. And at that point, everything changes. Everything is reversed. Because what Haman actually does is just pull the horse, literally, just like pulling the horse for Mordecai. The exchanges are flipped. And then Esther says, one more time, this is kind of what she does next, all these other if it pleases the king, and the next one she does is to say, hey king, guess what? I'm Jewish, my people are Jewish, you didn't know that, I know this is a little awkward, but there's actually an order out to kill all of us, and I need you to change that. Who kind of started that? Haman. And again, from there, everything starts to go into motion, where this plan of redemption, from Esther's courage to say that she's willing to love her people, it all changes. This downward mobility changes to actually a new ascendancy. This time it's not just for Esther, not just for Mordecai, but for all of the Jewish people. There was a way when Esther became queen, especially when she was hiding her identity, I mean, I guess that's good for the people, but this was different. Now it was public, now it was known. The God of this people had saved them, had restored them, 
if it pleases the king. I guess it did. All of this happens through Esther's bravery that's informed by the love of her people, that's informed by her willingness to sacrifice her life. And I hope that sounds familiar to you. It's a basic outline of the Jesus story, right? That basic outline of the frame that we have for our discipleship. So how does this story shape our lives? Last week, Matt asked us to identify where our lives are marked especially by fear. And I hope that you did that. My challenge for us this week would be to go back to that and to look where now in these places can we see how they're actually marked by certain relationships with power, where that fear actually has been kind of been an authority in our lives. It's not just that we've had fear, but that it's actually been authoritative for us. We actually need a power of love to be greater. Not just the sentiment of love that I think we can sometimes think of, or just the sentiment is better. We actually need love that's more powerful. Remember, our fear can go viral. It can affect the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. And that's dangerous. Just like crazy kings creating edicts willy-nilly based on ego and personal fears. I don't mean to be calling out anyone, if you think I am, but that's just who we are as people. That's just what we do as leaders. Whenever we get power, I think we'll try to lord it over people. And that happens, and it's even happening now where real consequences happen to real people because someone thinks that their fear can go viral, that their fear can be an authority in your life. And even as we saw in that one ad, that that can even affect the church. Maybe the church can especially be played by those kinds of fears. That fear monger is always happening. Our fears still create worlds where some of us are safer than others, where some of us are set up to be thriving, and others of us are just barely holding on. And what the message of God is for this is, can those fears lose their authority? Can they lose their power? Can a kind of love that's not just sentimentally strong, but is actually powerful, extinguish them? And sometimes that might happen because we see the love that God wants us to have for other people, not just for ourselves. Esther had to expand her imagination. It was more than her story. It was the story of her people. I think we're challenged to do the same. What are some of the stories of this city that we need to think about more? Maybe it's the schools of the city and how a certain kind of fear that goes viral says, I don't know, what am I going to do with the New Haven Public School? That kind of fear becomes justified. We end up thinking more of that if no one counters that crisis. What about the foster care crisis we're going to learn about in this city? where people say, you know, I don't want kids of that color. I don't want kids of that age. I don't want kids that have that health issue. That fear becomes viral, right? And we have to stand against it. We have to, because that fear has a way of shaping our lives, even our cities, even our nation, even our world. But love does something different. Love has a different way. That love can minister anti-anxiety. That love can minister peace. And that love ministers life over death. And I think that love empowers us to pray that prayer if it pleases the king in a whole new way. Because we have favor with God. We know that there's a real king somewhere. Instead of just that authority of fear that sometimes we're so tempted to believe in. Not just to believe in, but to obey ourselves. And we say if it pleases the king with some authority of the God who's with us. Sometimes directly to God. Maybe sometimes in our lives. If it seems good to you, would you do this 
mayor of New Haven? Would you do this, university president? Would you do this, boss, family matriarch or patriarch, knowing that it's not just us begging someone, but that we have a living God on our side with us, that we can go to the kings, the ruling powers of our world, and trust that God is with us? Can we minister peace to them? Can we create peace in our neighborhoods, in our societies? Or will we simply just mirror our own anxieties, our own confusions, our own fears when we walk into spaces? Esther has shown us a different kind of way, and I want to give us some invitations as we move forward. Where does your fear stem from an authority? Maybe it's a person, a culture, an institution in your life. I want you this week to pray peace over that situation and pray God's power, which I think is a power of love, over that situation. Second thing will involve, uh, or actually, no, are you uh, somewhere for such a time as this? This involves actually thinking about that kind of classic line from the Esther story, if you know this, for such a time as this. Are you anywhere like that, where you might be able to examine what people God's calling you to stand with? Are you here in that department, in that city, in that neighborhood, for such a time as this? The last one, I think some people have been asked to come and help me pass things out. If you have not, please, someone just come to the front and help me out. We have some cards. Uh, these are cards that are the examine. Ooh, got some response. Thank you for that. Um, the examine is a simple word for examination. And it's an activity that you can do, a spiritual exercise, actually uh, from the Jesuit tradition, the Catholic tradition. And you basically look at this card. You go through the examine uh, sometimes once a day. It can either be in the middle of your day, at the beginning of your day, looking at the day before, at the end. And it's a way to say, God, where have you been? Where have I seen you and where have I missed you? In this case, this is actually really adaptive to say, where have I experienced the love of God and where have I experienced fear? Can I ask the love of God to come to be with me? So please use this. Uh, we have, we're going to probably have some more in the back, so if you want to take these for others as well, you can put it in your wallet, your pocket, have it help you in your discipleship. And lastly, in what context in your life could you minister peace? Where could you actually minister peace in community? invite the worship team to come up. You know, Esther shows us a model of pursuing love for her people that was greater than fear. But Esther's topsy-turvy narrative doesn't get us all the way there. Even if you read the whole story, and I encourage you to, it's just 10 chapters, um, even at the end, many people die. Um, you can argue it's justified because of self-defense, but in the end of Esther, there's a large body count. There's still a lot of violence. And it's different from this other story that has a different kind of violence to it, a different kind of self-sacrifice, the the Jesus story, where he says, I'm actually going to say yes to loving others, even if it comes at cost to myself. Jesus is one who's faced authorities time and time again, demons, sickness, the religious establishment. In the face of God's great love, he actually told all those false authorities to leave. No begging or supplication was necessary. Yet even Jesus prayed this prayer that if it pleases the king, right, but in a different kind of way, hoping that the cup would pass from him, hoping that he didn't have to do what he knew he probably had to do. But Jesus, like Mordecai, was saying he wanted to obey. He wanted to be a person to obey and to submit to the only authority that really does matter, that really does have power in our lives, the authority of God. And Jesus, this Jesus, died for the sake of love. 
died for the sake of love by the ones he loved, he was killed. And that love was moving even until the very end, moving to people, towards people, dying on behalf of people. That's the God we're celebrating in communion. When we take the bread, the body of Jesus, we dip it into the cup, the blood of Jesus, we're celebrating who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, the fact that his love has made this different world possible, this new way possible. And in his death, fear and the power that's associated with it died as well. Because now there's a new life, a new resurrection that actually stands against and over the work of fear in our lives. So I encourage you as you take communion today to think about this is something where you're taking in the power of God's love, the power of Jesus that stands against the power of fear in your life. And you're taking that in to be with you, to be present, to be part of your story. Let me pray for us as we transition to communion. God, I pray right now that you would be present. I pray that you would be present in the elements today, that you would give us a surprising courage that comes from a love that is powerful, a love that's at the center of your story, a love for you, God, but also a love for us, for people, that it was because of your love for us that you died. God, would you give us the courage to take the elements knowing that they will change us, knowing they will cause that fear that we struggle with, to be wrestling and on notice with you. God, we pray for you to overcome it through your great love. Pray this in Jesus' name. The communion service can come up to the front. Let's worship God in this time.